Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Hey, Doug, Jim. Mr. Axton. Ah, there you are. <laughs> How you doing? I'm doing well. I got to start out with a confession. Okay. I didn't even start chapter three. Life came at me from different directions, and here I am. Yeah, I, I understand. How you doing, Matt? Doing well. Doing very well. How about yourself? Everything's good. Yeah. I did get through your answers, and, and I'd say you fully comprehend it. <laughs> well, I'm glad I comprehend something. <laughs> and I enjoy the discussion questions. I think they're really good. They really, they really make you work through the material well, I think, in a way that I find really effective to kind of bring it all home. Oh, good, good. Yeah, that's the goal is to say, well, if you didn't get this out of the reading, maybe you should have. And I actually, I have to go back. It's been so long since I did those lectures. I have to go back and listen to me <laughs> to see what I said. <laughs> uh, and there's nothing worse than listening to yourself. I, I thought, man, this is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, I just have to digest it. Yeah, maybe in the abstract, it's hard to get. But in the concrete, it's easy, and that is, what is a Jew? Well, a Jew's not a Gentile. What's a Gentile? Oh, a Gentile's not a Jew. So it's identity through difference. And when you put it in terms of people, then we get, oh, this is not a harmless system, because this pits one against the other. You know, that's certainly in Japan, you're either a Nihonjin or a Gaijin. If you're a Gaijin, you can never be a Nihon gene. Never. It's, never. it's an impossibility, and that's what a Nihon gene is. He's somebody who's not a guy gene. <laughs> and it may sound harmless enough in the abstract, but I think in the concrete world, it always ends up being violent. Hey, Brian, good to see you, or see your picture anyway. It's the real thing this time. Okay, good deal. Were you able to read my blog on uh, Gnosticism? Hans Jonas is who I'm following, and Hans Jonas has written a, a book, but also he has an article on linking uh, first century Gnosticism and 20th century, or you know, wherever you would put existentialism, 19th, 20th, 21st century existentialism. Mm -hmm. the, uh, Jonas's point is that they're, they, they share a nihilistic the point of departure. And I found that quite significant. I, I, I think that is an insight. And, you know, obviously that when we talk about existentialism, that maybe what Soren Kierkegaard is doing, we want to, I, I don't know if we want to lump him in with the atheistic existentialists, but there is a little bit of that even in Soren Kierkegaard. And I think it's there in Gnosticism. And that is that what you're getting, and I, I if you tie this in, I think it's there in John, especially in chapter five. You know, I think that the seven signs of John, that I think he's working a particular point or a particular lesson in each of the seven signs. Some of them are obvious, you know, that, oh, he changes water into wine at a feast in Cana of Galilee. This points to the new age, new wine wedding feast of the lamb. 
Second, he goes in and cleanses the temple. You know, obviously, John is used, not using the term miracle, but he's talking about signs. And so the cleansing of the temple is a sign. And we have an interpretation of the sign because that it says that destroy this, this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. And then we get John's explanation. He was talking about the temple of his body. But, it, you know, he's all this, almost just saying point blank, Jesus is the temple. You know, you go through the obvious, some of them you don't even need to explain. The man born blind, you know, healed. Well, here is spiritual insight. Here is the, the healing of a spiritual blindness, the resurrection of Lazarus. But the, the man at the pool in uh, Bethesda is, is a kind of interesting one. And I think it ties in, it illustrates what I think might be happening or is unfolding both with uh, Judaism and with this false teaching, and that is that, you know, the man's there waiting by the water because the angel, and of course, this is a interpolation that has put in, been put into many translations that is not there in the rig, original, and that is that some interpretations say an angel stirred up water, but of course, that's what they believe is that, that there is a kind of magical power in the waters. That's not too far removed from the way that the Jews, in other words, the man is Jewish. And so it's not a huge leap between, you know, his belief about the kind of impersonal, depersonalized nature of the way God works. And then the way that the Jews view the Sabbath. In other words, here's this poor man, you know, waiting to get healed for 38 years. And their problem, they don't rejoice when the man is healed, but they complain that he's carrying his bed on the Sabbath. That's pretty dark. <laughs> and of course, I think the Jews or the Jewish leaders have the same view as the man, and that is that they see God working through the law, through you know, through some kind of impersonal power. And of course, that's really a description of what Gnosticism is going to end up being. That the Gnostics just believe that the demiurges mediate, you know, this is the way they're going to use the term logos. The logos is a kind of mediating power between, you know, the uh, ultimate deity and, and the world. And so that you have to have these mediating powers. But though that is a false teaching, I think it's a false teaching that takes up a common view of the world. And this is Hans Jonas's point. You know, he, he spends his life studying Gnosticism. We really don't, you know, even the word, you know, when we say Gnosticism, this encompasses so many different languages, so many different groups. But he's saying that there are shared characteristics, that, that the, the word is a legitimate word that we can use to apply to these various groups. And so in his nihilism and existentialism, Gnosticism, he's breaking down then what this shared perspective is. And I think this idea of a depersonalized, uh, uh, a kind of dark understanding that is going to develop the, the world, maybe after the Copernican revolution, that suddenly the world is shifting up. And the way in which it's shifting, or one of the interpretations of that, and I'm about to say something that is itself under contention, but I think it's true that an understanding of the Copernican revolution, the Galileo, the, the revolution there is that it knocks man from the center of the universe. 
Now, I don't know if you've done much with that. That's a partially untrue statement in the, yeah, but at the same time, it puts the human knower at the center of everything because it's the human knower and observer who is able to understand these laws. So I'm, I'm almost taking into account both things simultaneously. There is a sense, though, that in which humans with the uh, scientific revolution are no longer going to feel at home in the universe. And this then, maybe uh, Blaise Pascal is the first to give expression to this felt loneliness in the world. And this is who Hans Jonas turns to. He turns to Pascal's Penises, or the, the name of his book. And he's describing just a, a primal fear that why am I here? Why am I not somewhere else? Why am I in this place at this time? And so it is, I think, the impetus here, if there, you know, is the beginnings of what we will call existentialism. But it's also the same time, uh, Blaise Pascal is a Jansenist, he's Roman Catholic, but you understand that uh, with nominalism, the rise of, I, I always say Duns Scotus, other people say that's not his fault, uh, but at least the Franciscans, William of Ockham, Nicholas of Cusa, that there is going to develop the notion of God has absconded, deus absconditus. You heard the phrase, you might have encountered it in Martin Luther, because the reformers are all going to talk about God has left us, God has absconded, meaning that God is hidden, is the idea, and that in some way we no longer have direct access to God, even through Christ. This is why Karl Barth is so, you know, maybe mistake, I think mistakenly so, but that he uses the phrase, the entus is the Antichrist, in other words, he, he's saying that we've lost God. And of course, he blames Thomas Aquinas, probably mistakenly. But the point that is well taken, and that is that in the Protestant Reformation and in certain, you know, Franciscanism among the Jansenists, there is this notion that God has absconded, that we don't have access to who God. Tim, good to see you. Hey, Tim. I, had to, I just got I got just got off work a little late. You were counting the extra money. <laughs> yeah, that's right. If too much comes in, it takes you longer. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I was just talking about the characteristics of a Gnostic, and when I say Gnostic, I'm presuming that it is a proto-Gnostic understanding that is being addressed by John. And I'm taking that with the idea, and I'm happy for criticism because I realize I tend to, uh, I tend to think big, and maybe sometimes I get carried away. Uh, but I think that Gnosticism is a manifestation of the human predicament or the human problem. That is, it is a type, it is a manifestation of the predicament or problem that is being addressed in the New Testament. And so I'm beginning, I'm describing this in relationship now to, I think it's there throughout John, that he is, that what is Jesus is challenging in John, and I think John is very aware of, I mean, that this is the way he's structuring the book, is this particular understanding of God 
It's a shared understanding. It's there partially in Judaism. I think Gnosticism is a development that, in part, it is a Jewish-Christian understanding. It's fused with, you know, pagan ideas, certainly. But the, the leap I was making, Tim, was to do the thing I uh, had done this past week with Hans Jonas, and I, I think we can understand Gnosticism through uh, existentialism. That's Hans Jonas's conclusion. And, the, of course, the reason existentialism, that that, in a sense, takes us into our own. I think that we are faced with the same world view that the Gnostics had with the modern scientific revolution, that in some way God is not available to us and that we're no longer at home in the universe. The uh, article that was with the blog, I read the first page and a half, and I thought, wow, this describes current events to me. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think it should, I think it should, should resonate. It resonates with Protestantism across the board. May, you know, most Protestants, I don't know if they understand why they believe what they believe. But Calvin and, and Luther are both steeped in nominalism. In other words, they themselves are just trapped in a particular understanding that is going to talk about the hiddenness of God. And so a kind of negative theology, it's very much part of what they're, they're doing. Uh, and the idea of the phrase, Deus absconditus, that God has absconded, that the hiddenness of God. That's certainly what Blaise Pascal is talking about. He's a, a devout believer, a, a kind of genius. I don't know if you've read Pascal, but he, he is maybe the first in Jonas's depiction to kind of wake up to the implications of this notion of God's hiddenness, of the scientific revolution. And of course, implied in this is a kind of interiority, a focus on human interiority, a trust in knowing human knowledge that is isolated then from this kind of sense of loneliness or being strangers in the world. I don't know if you're familiar, you know, existentialism is just this idea that in its uh, believing form, rightly or wrongly, it's tied to Kierkegaard's notion of a leap of faith. And the idea is that you can't get there from somewhere else. It's going to be taken up in atheistic existentialism. That is, atheistic existentialism is very much tied into this kind of nihilism, that the world is impersonal. You know, think of the poor paralyzed guy by the pool of Siloam. Hey, it just seems like uh, the universe doesn't know I'm here. God doesn't know I'm here. And so my only hope is to get into these magical waters and get healed. And, of course, the Jews, nobody challenges that the pool's magical. And, in fact, they think of Jesus' magic as about, about the same thing as the pool's magic. You know, nobody questions that Jesus healed the man. Their question is about the Sabbath. Uh, and so what they're actually saying is that Jesus could heal the man illegally. I mean, think about that. That is that one, you would think that one who has the power to heal somebody also has the power to interpret an understanding of the Sabbath. But of course, their point is, no, God, we know how God operates. He functions through the law. And that's the very notion that I think Jesus is challenging. And, of course, the law reduces to this kind of impersonal, secondary, you know, that 
That's the problem of making the law primary, because it's going to make the presence of God, the reality of who God is, secondary. I think that's what Jesus is challenging in the Jewish no, uh, uh, Jewish notion of the law. Certainly, that's what Paul is depicting. But I think that's also then there in John, and I think that's the big picture in John, that you know, with the I am statements, with the logos title, with the uh, the whole notion is no, this is God here in the flesh, and so that is a challenge to this kind of Jewish understanding of how God works. It's a challenge to, I think, the developing proto-Gnostic understanding, but then I think it's a challenge to a, a very much a modern understanding that we always imagine that God is working through, you know, even though the Newtonian universe is supposedly undone by, by Einstein, that the absoluteness of law but I think we still basically live in a Newtonian universe in which law is a kind of absolute, and deism then is the natural result of that absolutizing of impersonal, depersonalized universe run by law. That just captures then what we will always tend to do with God. We're going to, in, in some way, we're going to make our religions magical, manipulative, uh, an exchange, I do this, God, if you'll do that, sacrificial. I, I think that's all tied up with this kind of uh, understanding of, of God in this, in this view. And so is, if you're going to talk about Gnosticism, you cite Hans Jonas. The critique of Hans Jonas, of course, by moderns is the, always the critique, and that is that he, he thinks in these kind of large categories. But I think after you spend your life studying something, if you can't draw, you know, what is uh, theoretically true about this, then I'm not sure what the, the value of it. I'm definitely on the trail of this recognition that, well, I go back to, to Genesis where it says knowledge of good and evil. I Maybe I can't help but see that as a dualism, but everything that I'm aware of in between then and you know, what we call Cartesian dualism and the mind-body problem. And of course, to some degree, I could learn from Jonas. I know about other developments in existentialism and um, what you're saying about Lacan, Zizek, and Freud with the, the I and the, uh, the ego. I'm wanting to see it everywhere, and I'm trying to uh, recognize it. That's why I say I'm on the trail, because it does. It, it, it's something that's been thematic for me. And to hear you talking about it, especially as we look into John, and it was there in our Sin and Salvation course earlier this year, it, it, it does make sense. It resonates. It's hard to even say what I, what I struggle with. Uh, maybe it's from the very tendency itself to want to make it too simple, <laughs> tendency to, to want to make it very clear and somehow even diagrammable. Maybe I make it. Maybe I'm guilty of making it too simple. But that's what I'm. Or it's Jonas's point about Gnostic thought, is that you get the. It's actually body spirit dualism, and so the spirit is that spark of the divine. You know, think of Plato's notion: the the body is the prison house of the soul. Well, the Gnostics are going to take that idea up. That you don't recognize spirit 
until you recognize how alien, you know, we're creatures, and they think that creatureliness stands over and against that spiritual reality. So there's the dualism. But of course, the whole thing is a dualism, that God is removed from us. And the only way we're going to, you work the difference. In working the difference, you come to an identity with the divine identity Mm -hmm. through difference. I was just explaining this to Jim, that it's maybe concrete when we talk about the difference between Jews and Gentiles. What's a Jew? A Jew's not a Gentile. What's a Gentile? Gentile's not a Jew. What's good? Well, it's not evil. What's evil? Well, those binaries, you know, they sound harmless enough in the abstract, but when you enflesh it in Jew, Gentile, Mm -hmm. Jim and I are familiar with Japanese, you know, it's Nihonjin, Gaijin, in this country, it's black-white, uh, I think, are the, the prime. But it, you understand that in every tribe, people, wherever you go, and by that, I don't mean in any way to minimize or, or to say you know, that what's happened in this country, I understand it's a violent, terrible system, but it, it always is. You know? right. uh, and you just encounter it uh, again and again. And I think that's what Paul is addressing with Jew-Gentile, but I think that's what John is addressing in the various night or, or the darkness. He actually does use night and day. You know, he's using that all the good stuff happens in the morning and all the bad stuff happens at night. You know, Nicodemus comes to him at night. Resurrection happens in the morning. He's going to use the literal night and day, but also darkness and light, uh, life and death, same, same thing. I think that's the, the point of the Jesus's challenging of the Sabbath. You know, at, at one level, yeah, the Jews have taken the Sabbath laws, and they trump then the reality of a human life. They don't care if that guy's been there 38 years suffering. Because the law, they, they have the law. But, but the point with the Sabbath in John is even bigger than that. It's not that, you know, Jesus says, you know, obviously the idea that he's the Lord of the Sabbath, but also the idea that the Sabbath pertains to the original point of the Sabbath. It's cosmic in proportion. That it, in the original Genesis story, the seventh day speaks of the cosmic temple, and God has entered his temple. And I think that's the Sabbath that that Jesus is restoring, that here God is found in the cosmic temple. I think with what I've just said about the false teaching, can you understand how a Greek understanding of logos, translating it into prime, you know, logos just means rationality or reason, that's going to stand over and against the picture of Jesus as the Logos. What John is doing with the Logos title, that's what is also being illustrated in Jesus' challenge with the law. Is Satan just seeking to just deceive us? I mean, every every word from Scripture that is intended to inform and lead us to understanding, he just twists and distorts and does everything he can to keep us from understanding what God wants us to know. I think there is a delusion that's put upon us 
N.T. Wright, sometimes I kind of agree with him, is the state, should we refer to it as an it, a subpersonal thing? I don't know. That's the depiction of the serpent. We, we also don't want to fall into Flip Wilson category and say, well, the devil made me do it, because then we're just playing with another antagonism. In other words, you can pit Satan against God. And I, I'm not saying that's what you're saying, Janice. I'm just saying that you can even demonize evil. <laughs> it sounds funny. That is that you can make it more substantial than it is. I remember you saying in another class, it was funny. I just remember your voice. Where'd that old snake come from? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, in the, in the narrative, that's not explained, right? Uh there may be this verse later in Isaiah, I believe, that talks about fallen, the fallen angel. And, you know, we have this theology or story about where, where Satan came from and he was the snake. But the snake was part of creation, too. Yeah, the snake is there. He arises out of the earth and disappears. This was another thing that's happening in Gnosticism that I think is there in the proto-Gnostics. That is that they're they're going to read a kind of cosmic conflict into scripture. You understand that most mythology is about some sort of conflict, cosmic conflict between the gods. Does everybody know what's happening with John Walton? Where he's talking about creation uh, as function. Uh, is that is that what you're talking about? Yeah. Uh, or as John Walton gives us a reading of Genesis that's saying it's over and against the things like the Enuma Elish, in which there is the gods, you know, that there's a war between the gods. That is what mythology does. It presents the universe as arising out of conflict between the gods. And Genesis isn't doing that. There is chaos and there is darkness, but that is subsequent to. And I'd say the same thing about whatever that serpent is. In other words, we need to place the problem within the context of creation. The problem is not with creation itself. The problem is not prior to creation. And again, that's the problem of reading the pre-incarnate Christ, but I think it's also the problem of giving too much emphasis to the snake or to Satan, that we're going to do to Scripture what all myths do, and that we're going to picture the real conflict as between God and Satan, as if Satan is a kind of counterforce to God with the same, you know, similar ontological powers. Who is the writer he wrote a few years back? Frank Peretti. Okay, Frank, Frank Peretti. Yes. Frank Peretti. Yes, yes. <laughs> See, you need to you need to get down oh in the God. street with us. You need to you need to come down from my level. Yeah. You know, something though, Paul, I think really interesting, and just to dial it all back to the Logos, is that when you see, I think it's Heraclitus, and some of the idea with it being the structuring principle of the world, it's also, there's a violent Logos that can be projected into John, and I believe it was one of the, one of the earlier fathers, oh, um, Justin Martyr, he brought violence into the Logos, apparently, according to Michael Harden. And so you end up with this internal conflict within God. And of course, right back to John 1, what we're studying is that violence is at the heart, you know, another violent creation story. That's what John Walton is saying. No, in, in Genesis, first of all, it's not about material origins. It's about the, the why. He, he pictures the 
story in Genesis as a temple dedication ceremony. <laughs> the thing that Walton doesn't, and, and, you know, that all of these mythologies of violent beginning, and here is the idea, know that we have in the beginning was God, and then creation, and then the chaos is, is ordered. I, I would link that to what's happening in John. I think the first portion of John is doing what Genesis does. Here is a temple dedication ceremony. But the temple, the true temple, is Jesus. And it is then uh, an anti-mythology. This is why the Gnostics didn't like John. And this is why the Orthodox do embrace John. Because it is the Word became flesh. The Word dwelt among us. It, it's doing all of those things. That is, that God has come to his temple. And the true temple is of cosmic proportion. Bringing a bunch of strands together for me, Paul. Yeah. Well, just the one thing you talked about earlier about this idea of grabbing, obtaining, clinging, and you talked about this first order experience of deity. But we look at Eve in the garden, there's this idea of reaching out and clasping and grabbing this fruit. Whereas Paul's hymn in, in Philippians 2, Jesus didn't grasp. It was something he chose not to do, but rather humbled himself. You know, he could have reached out. And someone said that that's quite a, a parallel to that Genesis story. And so that really struck me as you were talking about that idea of that first order experience of deity. We can be like God by not grasping, but rather, you know, having that open hand that gets crucified, so to speak. Yeah, the grace of God is given to us. We can't grab it. No, and, and it's madness in the world's idea because we fix everything with violence. I think we're saturated in it. That's the form of our thought. War and violence are, are the natural outcome. Uh, we project that onto God. And, of course, the way you get out of that is an originary peace, not an originary violence. You know, I think one of the things that helped me is back to that grasping the fruit. You know, the knowledge of good and evil seems like it, that'd be a pretty good thing to have, right? But that's not the story. We were not created to live our lives depending upon the knowledge of good and evil. We were made to depend upon the life of God himself. The lie is that you will become like God when you learn the knowledge of good and evil. And there's your identity through difference. There's separate good from evil, even. Yeah, seems, no, that's like it. A, seems like a good thing to do, right? I mean, let's separate good and evil so we can do what's good. But that's not life in the spirit. It's not life in God. It's, it's something that we were enticed into depending upon. Yeah, that's it. I think that story illustrates it for us. That's Hegel's point of departure. He said, of course, he's reading the fall in Genesis. Obviously, he didn't believe it, but he's saying, oh, see, here we need this thing, that we need the, the dialectic. Derrida reads the same story. He says, yeah, but understand that that is the fall. <laughs> in other words, Derrida gives us a more orthodox reading. I'm afraid than, than uh, many Christians do. It is there in Zizek and Lacan. You know, they're, all, they're all referencing this story. So, so postmodernism, uh, it is deeply steeped in a kind of Hebraic understanding, I believe, in which there is a kind of deconstruction of this, of the, the genesis, you know, the fall of man, the, the, human, the forms of human thought. I mean, well, I guess it's also interesting to see the early church, particularly in the creeds, 
I mean, when they want to understand what the canon of the truth of the Orthodox faith is, I mean, they basically tell the story of God and Jesus over again. And you compare that to, to thinking of logos as, as, as proposition, you compare that to go to any church website and we believe is, is a list of propositional statements about the world. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the huge misunderstanding that uh, fundamentalists or conservatives have you know that in uh, narrative theology, or they've accused it of being postmodern. People have said, "Well, that the Jesus, the truth here is not a propositional truth." I think they're missing the point, and the reason they're missing the point is they, in fact, do believe that truth is a series of propositions or a series of doctrines. In other words, what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, you know, this is Carl F.H. Henry, but he's just one of many. He would just list, and that's what every church website does, you know. Well, what, what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, it means you believe these truths. If you adhere to these doctrines, then you're one of us. Uh, and, of course, as you're saying, yeah, that just misses the point that this truth doesn't function at that level. It's not, And that's not to deny that we can't make propositions about it. It's just to say that that's not the basic nature of this truth, that it's not a propositional truth. It's not a, a logos that is a kind of archetype or a rationality, but it is a personal truth. And that just, re- that just has all kinds of implications. The nature of believing this truth is also then not going to be, I acknowledge these propositions, but it's going to pertain to our own personhood or or apprehension of it. So this certainly stands over and against, you know, I think the way what has happened, unfortunately, uh, whether people believe Boltmann or not, that actually that's kind of that, that kind of thought that is actually a kind of theological liberalism, but it also uh, pictures, I think, what fundamentalism has done or conservatism. It tends just to reduce who Christ is and I'll say this in Richard Rohr language, not who Jesus is, but you know, it's a, we, we can only talk about Christ because Christ is that pre-existent, disincarnate archetype. This is what the Franciscans are doing. You know, this is the the idea they're talking about being. You know, this is why Martin Martin Heidegger is just trained as a you know he trains as a, in a seminary in the beginning. You know, he's trained by priests, so he's talking about being and not being. Oh, that's right out of you know Greek philosophy, but it's also right out of Dun Scotus. They they want to talk about uh, God in terms of power, in terms of the power of being. I remember I I ran into this in college I, with Paul Tillich. I thought, well, this is quite fascinating, you know, love, power, and justice. And he, but of course, that they're all playing with this idea of a kind of disincarnate Christ rather than with Jesus, the person, the you know, the incarnate Jesus. And so when we when we're talking about the logos as in this sense for the Jews, I think we're going to fall back into a kind of Neoplatonism and a, a kind of Greek understanding. And, and, and that's just obvious in some ways that the division, you know, between soul and body that we have going to heaven when you die, that's, a, that's just ingrained in people. I, I, it's almost impossible to dispossess them of this idea, which implies a kind of 
denigration of the body, a denigration of the earth, a denigration of, you know, material existence. That's very much there in Greek philosophy. You know, is it because of the Greeks? I'm never sure. I I just think the Greeks are like the rest of us, that we kind of fall into this Gnostic understanding because Gnosticism or this dualism is kind of where we just go. It may, in part, be a a direct influence uh, from the Greeks, but that we can trace it theologically. And this is what I mean when I say that Gnosticism is just a type, it's a manifestation of the human problem. We're always going to fall into these dualities, heaven, earth, body, soul, you know, heaven, hell. That's that's just the, the way we naturally work. So I think that's step one, the Logos as a, the person of Christ. Then did, did everybody get what Matt was saying about the Targums and the Memra? That, I think this is key. In the Targums, we have Old Testament scripture in, translated into Aramaic. And the word that they're using is often translated as the Lord in our Old Testament scripture in the English translation, which is a cover of Yahweh. They're, they're using the word Memra for Yahweh. And Memra actually literally means the word. Oh, okay. And so it's, it's in essence, the, saying, you know, John's use of logos is, is the same thing as saying Memra. It's a translation. It's using the same word in, in different languages. Which is their way of saying the unpronounceable name of God. Right, the Yahweh is the tetragrammaton that you're always going to use. You know, instead of saying YHWH or whatever that was, <laughs> they would say Adonai in Hebrew. You know, Lord. But what the in Aramaic they're they're using Memra. So literally, it's kind of duplicated in John that when we talk about the ego a me passages, I am. That's really no different than the logos. And the Logos is no different than the I Am. It's the strongest affirmation of deity that you have in the New Testament. And it is just Jesus claiming this title, this name, that is given first to Moses at the burning bush. And, of course, the Jewish tendency is already Greek, that you will find Jews. I don't think this is the way they originally thought of it. But I am that I am, you understand, you can play with that philosophically and have all sorts of fun. Oh, well, that's uh, that's an affirmation of God's being. You know, it's a self-grounding being. I don't think that's what God meant with that title. And I think we learned that in the Gospel of John. What did God mean to Moses? Well, I am the one who goes before you into Egypt. And in the new, you know, in John, I am the one who calms the waves. In other words, it's going to be tied with Jesus' healing ministry, with the signs of, of Christ, with his identity, you know, I am before Abraham. If we were unsure how to translate the Tetragrammaton prior to Jesus, now we can say, oh no, we know what the Tetragrammaton is. It's, it's what Jesus does in the gospel. It's who Jesus is in the gospel. Here is the true I am that I am. I, it, it's a little ambiguous in Exodus. In other words, the Jews are going to do what 
everybody does they're going to they also are going to turn to eventually greek philosophical thought but i i think that it's it's uh, stands over and against that jim yeah this caught my eye this sentence uh john is a corrective to any theology which would understand who god is on any basis other than in and through christ that's what i mean by that now maybe you find that you know, that could be offensive to someone because we're used to talking about available light, you know, that everybody can come to God through reason. And what I'm saying, and I think what John is saying, I think what Jesus is saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And I think that that is because of the human predicament, the human condition, you know, because of the, the sin condition. I'm not putting any kind of delimitation i'm not i'm not saying that people can't have you know an experience of god or but i think the final fullness of who god is is only available to us through christ now i think that aligns with i think that fulfills what may be there in the world religions but i also think it will tend to stand over and against and I think the way in which it will stand over and against is the same way that it stands over and against Judaism. That is that they're going to depersonalize this. They're going to link it to the law. And what the Greeks do, I think, is also the human tendency. They're going to extract it, abstract it, and disincarnate. Uh, so I think that there will be a sense in which Christ is addressing every religion, every system of belief, and it, there may be sense in which he fulfills or completes, but I think there is always going to be the sense in which there is a challenge to that belief. That's just a point of faith with me. I, I understand that's not the way that we've all been trained, probably. One way or another, whether you're fundamentalist, you know, whether you've been liberal, wherever you might have been, we've been brought up on the idea that when Paul in Romans is talking about the law written on the heart, that there is available to people a natural understanding of God. And I'm not denying God's grace. That It's not that nature is pitted against grace. It's that man is sinful and fallen, and that that sin has a characteristic form, and we're describing that form. In, uh, that is, that in Jesus' challenge to the Jews, I think that challenge, just as in Paul, it's not just the Jews that have this problem with the law. That problem describes the human predicament in that we would all imagine there is in some way life in the law. In other words, we would displace God, who is personal, with that which is impersonal. Matt? This may take us a little far, far afield, so feel free we can move on if you like. But I'm curious, you mentioned earlier Bart and the, um, you know, his understanding of the you know, uh, Analogia intis. How is, you know, our, our understanding, we start with Christ, um, that we know God through Christ and not through, you know, our, the law written on our heart or, our, or you know, our, our led there logically through our conscious, to God through conscious thought. Uh, how's that different than what Bart's doing with re his rejection of the Analogia intis? Yeah, this is, gets complicated because, first of all, I think he misunderstands what the Analogia intis is supposed to mean okay. it's an analogous you know this, this if you use the idea of analogy uh there's nothing wrong there's nothing inherently wrong with the idea that 
that one thing is analogous to another, but you can still talk about that analogous thing as participating in it, as it participating in that reality. I think that Bart is picturing the analogia entis as a univocity of being. And what the, the difference is in the univocity of being, it's not analogous or it's not a participation in who God is, but there's a sense that there's a shared ontology. I think Bart's idea, the Antis is the Antichrist. I think what he he could have said that in different ways. What he's talking about is the Nazis. What he's talking about is the German church. How do you get a bunch of Nazi Christians? Well, he's saying the way you do that is you empty out, uh, you know, you get rid of Jesus with a kind of rational mm-hmm. understanding. And that's what's happening with the university of being in William of Ockham. I'll say Duns Scotus. This it's all highly contentious, you know, uh, how you read Duns Scotus. I, I'm no expert in that, certainly. Uh, and whether it's Thomas Aquinas, you know, this is the Nouvelle theology. They're saying, no, Thomas Aquinas never had this. The way that Bart is reading, in other words, he's reading Analoga Entis, he's reading that, equating it with what Thomas Aquinas is doing and folding that together with uh, the Franciscan's notion of the university of being. Okay. Who I was trying to think of is Henry de Lubach. And then uh, Hans von Balthasar, actually, I think was like a campus minister in in Switzerland and, and got to know Bart. And von Balthasar and Bart are going to become friends. Von Balthasar is talking to Bart about the Entis and trying to convince him that, that, that Bart's understanding here is not correct. So I think, I think that Bart himself will come to question that, that reading of it. So I think he's mistaken historically, but I don't think he's mistaken in the spirit of what he's saying. Oh, the church opened the door to evil. And the way that happened is that Jesus got displaced by this kind of depersonal, you know, Gnostic, I, I would, you know, it's, it's again, r- rationalism. This is also there in Hans Jonas, but this is what the, all the, the Nouvelle theology, the Catholic theologians, they're going back and they're reading Thomas Aquinas and recovering Thomas Aquinas from the reading that you get in Scotus, Occam, or Rene Suarez, you know, in these uh, kind of the school book Catholicism that everybody came to, to learn, saying, no, that, that you can't connect this. The, the point is Christianity failed. I mean, can we say Christianity failed in Nazi Germany? We don't even have to implicate ourselves. I think it failed across the board for the same reason. And, and we can trace the genealogy of that failure. My point with the genealogy of that failure, though, is that it's not a case apart from what the New Testament is already addressing. In other words, if we had understood the false teaching that, you know, John says that if any man says that Christ has not come into the flesh, he's of the Antichrist. The dualism is already there. They're going to separate the spiritual from the, in, the fleshly. Well, that's just, that's just more of the same. That's what we're seeing in, the, in a, a kind of modern rationalism. Peter Drucker, who left Nazi Germany just weeks after being warned by a uh, officer 
that they're going to take his family out. He sketches the progression from a Christianity before Nazism were un unfolded and how the uh, pastors were eliminated as as the Nazis, their grip tightened upon, you know, the society. He mentions a couple pastors who were just disappeared. He just um, mentions the progression from genuine believers in Germany who uh, did stand up, did, did give a voice, but were uh, silenced and were neutralized. Uh, yeah, the, the, my reading of Dietrich Bonhoeffer is that he's saying the church failed. He is advocating a uh, non-religious Christianity. Now, I've done, we've done a series of podcasts on Bonhoeffer, and John, one of my students, disagrees with my reading of Bonhoeffer. I don't disagree with my reading of Bonhoeffer, though. But I, I think that there are, is the idea in Bonhoeffer of uh, this whole thing collapsed. We can't, you know, we can't depend upon the institution as we've had it. And so he talks about getting rid of paid pastors, getting rid of the lands and the building. The whole thing has failed. So that Nazi Germany is kind of the case in point of the failed theology of the 20th century. But of course, what happened in Nazi Germany is not unique to Nazi Germany. And we're seeing that now in the United States because we still have the leftovers of the same thing. I mean, it's just all happening here again. The, 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 a new messianic figure, you know, is on the horizon. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.